Greetings, Livingstone Church. I am coming to you from the office here at the church for hopefully the last time, uh, and I'm coming to you unscripted uh, today. Uh, a lot of the services that we've done, I have written out a script and, and read it in the beginning, and every time I listen to it, it just feels so fake, and it's been interesting to just think about uh, how we don't live life in a scripted way. Uh, just today, I ran to the store and uh, ran into two friends that I was not anticipating to meet there, and just to have those conversations, I didn't have a script planned out, right? I wasn't anticipating meeting them, uh, but just to see them, to be surprised, to have excitement on my face, to have great conversations uh, was really a joy, and as that is going to be hopefully our new reality moving forward that we will be able to see people face to face, that I will be able to get up in front of you and not just read from some script and not just have all my words polished and prepared. And if I mess up the audio, I can just go back and start over. Uh, that's, that's not going to be the reality. So all that to say, we are very excited uh, about being able to join together face-to-face -face next Sunday. Uh, we're going to be meeting at 3 o'clock, uh, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and uh, just going to do that for one week, giving Portico extra time to get out of the building, time to clean, time to kind of figure out what things are going to look like as we transition in uh, to the building and they transition out. So very excited about that. If you are in a position where you're not comfortable coming back yet and being in person, we are going to be live streaming the audio of the service over Zoom, and we have all the details of that are already on the website, and you should have received an email from me um, by the time you're listening to this with all the details of what that's going to look like. The first page is really just kind of a, a reflection, a, a theological reflection on Kind of moving forward, I really would encourage you to take the time to read that. It's only about a page. And um, and please read the second page carefully as well. There are a lot of details on there about um, what we're going to be doing, what Sunday morning is going to look like. And I'm not going to get into all that right now, but please go read that announcement. It's also on our Facebook page. And again, like I said, uh, should be sent out by email. So just want to encourage you all to please be patient uh, in this process as we all adjust and adapt, and um, there's going to be a lot of, of changes moving forward, and hopefully the changes uh, that we are implementing will not be things that we have to do uh, for, for too long, So, but again, just please be patient with us uh, through those things. And as I said, coming to you unscripted today, uh, in an odd, maybe paradoxical way, the service is going to feel a little more scripted, and that's because uh, we're going to do something that we did last month uh, for, on the fourth Sunday that I got a lot of really good feedback from you all, and I think this is just a great way to kind of end our time of, of the quarantine and for our last Sunday um, meeting completely online. wanted to have the service be focused again on uh, prayers and singing, so there's going to be a lot of I'll be reading some scriptures, I'll be reading some written prayers, I won't be doing really any explaining uh, except for the congregational prayer, I'll just be explaining uh, how that's going to go. Um, but other than that, uh, it'll just be 
time to for you to reflect, uh, time for you to sing, time for you to hear God's word read and preached, and I am so excited that we can be back together next Sunday to do all of that face-to-face. So let us begin our service with a call to worship from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 10. It should be printed there on your worship guide. Let us go to the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray. Thou God of all grace, thou hast given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by him, to make him all my desire, all my hope, all my glory. May I enter him as my refuge, build on him as my foundation, walk in him as my way, follow him as my guide, conform to him as my example, receive his instructions as my prophet, rely on his intercession as my high priest. Obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach. Never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when thy word invites me to advance. May thy dear Son preserve me from this present evil world, so that its smiles never allure, nor its frowns terrify, nor its vices defile, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and a pilgrim on earth, declaring plainly that I see a country, my title to it becoming daily more clear, my meetness for it more perfect my foretastes of it more abundant. And whatsoever I do, may it be done in the Savior's name. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation. 
Our call to confession is from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let us pray. Wonderful Savior, we thank you for your wondrous grace and love in bearing our sin in your own body on the cross. May your cross be to us the tree that sweetens every bitterness in our lives, the rod that blossoms with hope and beauty, the vine that connects us to you, the only source of all our strength. We have died with you, have risen with you, and are even now seated with you in heavenly places. Yet we find that sin continues to have great power over us in our daily lives. Selfishness is in the very fabric of our flesh, and we struggle to choose love for others over pleasing ourselves. When we do manage to serve others, we often take pride in our own good conduct. Father, forgive us for the self-gratifying and self-exalting lives we lead. Jesus, thank you for giving up the glory of heaven to please your Father and to rescue us. You denied yourself the adoration you deserved to enter a world full of people who would reject you. You willingly carried the enormous burden of our sinfulness and carried it throughout your life. You lived a life of self-denial and sacrificial love for others, always obeying your Father. We thank you for your radiant robe of righteousness that replaces the filthy and shredded rags of our attempts to be good. You took our sin to the cross and paid the full price we owed so that we could be free from bondage to sin and death and from our relentless self-worship, and we are so thankful for this immeasurable gift. Holy Spirit, we have been given a cross to carry before we wear the crown. We confess that self-love causes us to reproach that cross and human reason leads us to run from it. Remind us that Jesus has carried that cross already for us, and he will surely carry it with us from day to day. Increase our joy in the cross of Christ, and our wonder and admiration for all that was accomplished there, until our hearts melt and our self-worship gives way to delight in our salvation. As true worship fills our souls, May we grow into people who swiftly turn away from our own desires to love others as we have been so greatly loved. We pray in the name of our glorious Redeemer. Amen. Have mercy.
Hear these words of assurance from John chapter 10 and chapter 15. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose 
For our congregational prayer, I will pray for the world, for our nation, for the city, for praying today for Oak Brook Church. Uh, we'll pray for our own church, and we'll have some time to pray for our individual needs. And then we will pray the Lord's Prayer uh, together, which, again, is printed there on your worship guide. Uh, I will pray, and, and then at the end of each section, I'll say, Lord, in your mercy... And you will respond with, hear our prayer. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. We will extol you, our God and King. We bless your name forever and ever. Every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. For you are great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. And yet as we look at the world around us, we do not see your name being extolled and honored. We do not see many around us praising you for your unsearchable greatness, and we are grieved. In the midst of a global pandemic that we have hoped and prayed would turn many hearts to you, we sadly see more distraction and more hope in human efforts to protect ourselves from the virus. But we must also confess that this is not just an out-there problem. In the world, your people have been distracted. Your people have not trusted you completely. And Father, we confess our lack of faith to you. And we say we are sorry for our sins. Forgive us. Father, we ask you to strengthen your church. Build your church according to your purposes, in your timing and not our own. 
We pray especially for our brothers and sisters in places where public gatherings were already restricted. We pray for wisdom for the dear saints who are suffering at the hands of ruthless political regimes. We pray for those in impoverished places throughout the world. We thank you for the faithfulness in the midst of suffering that they display. We thank you for the encouragement and challenge that they provide to us in this country as we still enjoy much comfort and safety. Remind us, Lord, that our safety and security in this world are found in Christ alone and that his is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for your mercy upon us as a nation. We continue to see the politicizing of the pandemic on both sides of the aisle, and we pray that you would break down the pride and self-seeking interests of our leaders so that they might work together for the good of all people in this country. We know that our politicians are people just like us, and that their sins and weaknesses are a reflection of what lurks in all of our hearts. May we be quick to examine the logs in our own eyes before we point out the specks in theirs. May we pray genuinely, believing in the commands in your word that we are to pray for all of those in authority. May we submit to their leadership as you have called us to. May we honor our leaders even as we might disagree with them. We pray for your church in this nation to be the first ones to confess our sins, to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge that we do not have all the answers. As many churches have reopened their doors or are preparing too soon, we know that many people are excited about getting back together for corporate worship. But we also know that there is some hesitation for some. May we bear with one another, serve one another, and show the love of Christ to one another in the days and weeks to come as we adjust to the many changes around us. Give us humility, grace for one another, and a desire to honor you so that the watching world might see and give glory to our Father in heaven. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Our faithful and gracious God, we pray for this city and the surrounding communities. We pray for those who are suffering from food shortages, financial difficulties related to job loss, and the many others who have been impacted in unexpected ways. We pray for those in authority to make wise decisions that will benefit everyone, but especially those who are most vulnerable. We pray that the economic impact that will be felt due to the many things being shut down this summer will not have a devastating effect on our city. But where those effects are felt, may people turn to you and not to themselves for answers. Father, we pray for the churches in Oshkosh to have wisdom about beginning to meet in person again for corporate worship. May we display love for you and love for our neighbors as we seek to begin gathering once again. May those who have been on the fence with you be led back into the fold so that they might be shepherded and cared for in Christian community the way you have intended. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for Oak Brook Church and Pastor Bob Bartlemay. We praise you, Lord, for how you have provided for them, both financially and in terms of growing discipleship, 
how you have given them faithful and fruitful staff to work together for the good of your kingdom. Lord, we pray for them that they would be effective in developing new leaders in 2020, that they would have greater missional engagement as well in 2020, and that you would grant them wisdom as they seek to come up with their plan for regathering together for corporate worship. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Father, thank you that you have sustained us and unified us as your people here at Livingstone Church. Thank you for the technological provisions that have allowed us to continue to be fed from your word during the time of quarantine. Thank you that we can begin to gather again next Sunday, and we look forward to the opportunity to be reunited with one another in person. We pray for those who are in the high-risk categories or those who do not yet feel comfortable meeting in person. Please continue to sustain them and feed them through the online worship experience. Thank you that Jesus is and always will be the head of Livingstone Church. May our eyes remain fixed upon him, and may we display a deep trust and reliance upon him to the watching world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Take a few moments now to go before the Lord with your individual needs. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray now together the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hello, Livingstone Church. This is James Lima. Now, if you'll remember a few weeks ago when I preached on Luke 7, I began with the question, what does it mean to love Jesus? And I'd like to begin with a similar question today. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And while we'll be talking a lot about what it means for us to follow Jesus today, to really understand it, we need to go back in time to see what it meant for the original disciples of Jesus to follow him. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are a fisherman by trade. That's not necessarily something that's hard for me to imagine. Is it something that I wanted to actually be when I grew up? But maybe if, even if it's not something that you always dreamed of being, I want you to imagine with me that you are a fisherman. That you live by this large lake and you spend most of the night in a wet, smelly boat pulling in nets full of fish. And then you spend the daytime selling your fish and mending your nets. Your father was a fisherman. His father was a fisherman. And your children will probably all be fishermen. You've always known what you wanted to do with your life, and the future, though something that's never completely known, was fairly predictable. You were probably going to be a fisherman until the day that you died. 
And it's then that one day when you're mending your nets that a teacher comes and he calls you to follow him. Now, what would it mean for you as this fisherman to follow him? And one thing we may not always appreciate enough is that following Jesus for the first disciples literally meant following Jesus. Our passage today even uses the phrase, come after me, to refer to following Jesus. It literally means coming behind him or walking behind him. So, if you were a fisherman back in Jesus' day when he was around during his earthly ministry, and he called you to follow him, it meant exactly what we saw in Luke 5 for Peter, James, and John. It meant pulling your boats on shore, leaving everything behind, all you had ever known, and walking behind Jesus wherever he might lead, learning from his teaching and from his life. So, in a very literal sense, part of following Jesus was, for the first disciples, just that, following Jesus. His path became their path. His way became their way. But what about us? Following Jesus, for us, it can't mean walking around Wisconsin with him, maybe taking a 14-foot aluminum boat with a 25-horsepower mercury motor across Lake Winnebago during a storm. However, following Jesus for us does, in a sense, mean going where he goes and knowing that his path becomes our path. In our passage today, Jesus makes his path clear, and he calls all who would follow him to see that his path, even his path to the cross, must become theirs. From this, we get the main idea for our passage. Since it was necessary for Christ to suffer, be rejected, and die, those who desire to follow him must embrace the same call. Since it was necessary for Christ to suffer, be rejected, and die, those who desire to follow him must embrace the same call. So let's go to God's word in Luke 9, verses 18 through 27. Please listen to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of, of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father, we praise you for your grace in revealing yourself to us despite our sin. It's only by your grace and your love that you have spoken to us in your word about yourself and about the way of salvation. So now by your grace, give us ears to hear these words, which are graciously given. And by your grace, transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Again, the main idea of the passage today is this. Since it was necessary for Christ to suffer, be rejected, and die, those who desire to follow him must embrace the same call. This passage shows us that if we desire to follow Jesus, we need to understand a few things. First, we need to truly grasp who it is that we're following. Second, we need to truly grasp what Jesus came to do. And third, we need to understand how our calling relates to Jesus' calling. And as we walk through the passage today, these three things that we need to understand are going to form our outline for us. So our first main point is this. Those who desire to follow Jesus must boldly know and confess who Jesus is. Those who desire to follow Jesus must boldly know and confess who Jesus is. I want you to look with me to verses 18 through 20. I really love this scene. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. First, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? We see that there was apparently plenty of confusion surrounding the identity of Jesus. Even last week in our passage in Luke 9, uh, specifically in verses 7 through 9, we saw that this, we saw this confusion when Herod was perplexed about the identity of Jesus. And it seems that there were three main theories which were listed in both pa- the passage last week and in our passage this week. Some people said that Jesus was John the Baptist. Others said that Jesus was Elijah. And others said that he was one of the prophets of old, maybe Jeremiah. There are a couple things that we should notice in these three theories about who Jesus was. First, pretty much everyone was in agreement that Jesus was a prophet. All three of the options were prophets, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets of old. And the reason that people believed Jesus was a prophet was probably due to the nature of his ministry thus far. So for much of his time already in ministry, he spent his time preaching and healing which were both actions that were associated with the prophets. So it's not necessarily that the people had a low opinion of Jesus. To be placed on the level of the prophets of old was certainly not meant to be an insult to Jesus. But secondly, we also need to see that many people thought that Jesus had come to prepare the way for the Messiah. In Malachi 4, God promised that he would send Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah which was actually a prophecy fulfilled by John the Baptist, one of the other three theories about who Jesus was. So for people to think that Elijah had returned was to believe that the Messiah was just around the corner. But despite all these different theories and these ideas that people had about who Jesus was and what he had come to do, Jesus wasn't just interested in the latest theories. He was interested in hearing what his disciples would say when he asked, 
who do you say that I am? So he asks him that question and the, the emphasis here is on the word you. There's an, it's called like an emphatic you here. So Jesus asked, but you, who do you say that I am to his disciples? And Peter, who acted kind of as the spokesperson for the disciples, he responded, you are the Christ of God, which can also be translated God's Messiah. Peter and the disciples, they had come to recognize that Jesus was more than just a prophet. He was more than just someone who prepared the way for the Messiah. Jesus was the promised Messiah himself, that he was the long-awaited king who would deliver God's people, that he would rule over them with justice. And if we desire to follow Jesus, we must be really clear in our understanding of who he is. One of the most important questions that all of us must answer is who do you say that Jesus is? Not just what do others say, but what do you say? Was Jesus a prophet? Some groups say so. Was he a good teacher with some helpful lessons about having a better life or being a better person? Or was he and is he the promised Messiah, the savior of the world? And this is a question that you must answer. If knowing who Jesus is is essential for following him, that also means that the constant object of our study as followers of Jesus must be Jesus himself. It's not enough to know some of his ethical teachings or know about some of the things he did if we're not really clear about who he is. And the early church understood this. Almost all of the serious controversies and debates in the first few hundred years of church history surrounded the question of who Jesus was. Was he God or was he created by God? Did he really die or did he only appear to die? Was he truly human or was he only kind of human? And sometimes if we study church history, we can think that those debates were just unnecessary nitpicking. But not if we recognize how vitally important it is that we answer the question of who Jesus is correctly. And just on a side note, if you're looking for a really good book to study the question of who Jesus is and why it matters, I'd highly recommend the little book Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. Again, that's Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. It's a really easy read. It's quite engaging. And it's actually perfectly suited for both adults and even I think middle schoolers and high schoolers could probably read that book and get a lot out of it. So the early church, church, they recognized that understanding who Jesus is, is vitally important. But they also noticed something else from this passage. They noticed that it's necessary to confess who Jesus is, which is why throughout church history, the church has, has written and confessed creeds that deal primarily with who God is as the Trinity and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're not only called to know in our minds who Jesus is, but to boldly confess who he is, even if our confession goes against popular opinion, which Peter's confession certainly did. And this is exactly what we desire to do when we confess the Apostles' Creed or we confess the Nicene Creed in our service. We want to join Peter in boldly confessing that Jesus is indeed more than a prophet and more than a good teacher, but that Jesus is the Christ, 
that he is our savior. And this leads us to our second point. Those who desire to follow Jesus must understand and embrace what Jesus came to do. Those who desire to follow Jesus must understand and embrace what Jesus came to do. When Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was correct, right? Jesus didn't correct him, tell him he was wrong. But he also would have had some serious misunderstandings about what the Messiah had come to do. The prevailing opinion about the Messiah was that he would be a conquering king. The, the messianic concept was tied very tightly to the concept of a, of a king. They thought that he would come and defeat all of Israel's enemies, which in Jesus' day was Rome. So they would think that maybe he would come and defeat Rome on behalf of Israel and that he would rule as a powerful political figure. And this is why Jesus charged the disciples in verse 21 to tell nobody that he was the, that he was the Messiah. Because if news had spread that the Messiah had come, it would have actually caused more people to misunderstand what Jesus had really come to do. It wouldn't have added any clarity to the situation. It would have actually muddied the waters about Jesus' identity and what he had come to earth to accomplish. But now that the disciples are sure, are really sure that Jesus is the Messiah, he needs to set them straight on his mission. They need to know what he had come to do. So in verse 22, he lays out the path that he must walk as the Messiah. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now in this sentence, the key word is must. When it comes to Jesus' work as the Messiah, he lists four things that he must do, that are completely necessary. Suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. And the word for must in this verse is actually grammatically connected to all four of those things. So you could actually translate this verse by saying that he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and he must be raised. And this was so shocking to Peter that in Matthew 16, we, saw, we see that he actually began to rebuke Jesus. Peter was so opposed to the idea of a suffering Messiah that he actually rebuked the one that he had just called the Christ. But I want you to think about the disappointment that Peter and the disciples would have felt. It was just confirmed to them that the Messiah was here. Finally, victory would come. Finally, Israel's enemies would be defeated. Finally, they would be restored to their former glory. And then the Messiah says, I must suffer. I must be rejected by the leaders of Israel. And I'm even going to die. What kind of Messiah is that? What kind of victory is that? And what they had missed, what the disciples had missed, is that it had, all, it had always been God's plan that salvation would come through suffering. We read Isaiah 53, we read Psalm 22 and Psalm 118, and we read about the sacrificial system in Leviticus. And on the other end of the cross, we expect it. We expect a suffering Savior. But they didn't. They should have, but they didn't. 
for, for them, again, the concept of Messiah was strictly tied to the concept of a conquering king. But Jesus needed to reorient them. Jesus would conquer, yes, but he would conquer through dying and rising. Salvation would come, but not immediate political or national salvation, but even greater salvation from the curse and from the presence of sin. And though we may not have the wrong views that the Israelites did 2,000 years ago, I still think that we're constantly tempted to misunderstand Jesus' work. We want Jesus to be about the things that we're about. We want him to accomplish his work in the way that we think he should. And Jesus so quickly becomes whoever we want him to be. And we end up using him for our own political or personal or even social ends. Now, sometimes our causes are good, and sometimes they're even things that Jesus does indeed care about. However, if our understanding of Jesus' mission on earth doesn't revolve around the complete necessity of his suffering, rejection, substitutionary death, and resurrection, then perhaps we haven't correctly understood the path of Jesus. If we want to follow Jesus, then we must confess who he is and we must correctly understand and embrace what Jesus really came to do. And now that Jesus had laid out his path as the Messiah, the implications became clear for anyone who desires to follow him. And this is our last point. Those who desire to follow Jesus must follow him in a life of daily dying to self. Those who desire to follow Jesus must follow him in a life of daily dying to self. I want you to think back to my opening question for a minute. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I stated that part of following Jesus for the first disciples meant literally going where he went. If the path that Jesus was going to walk would include suffering, rejection, and death, then what could they expect but that those same things might very well be in their future? And in verse 23, Jesus makes that very clear. Not only for them, but for any disciple. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go suffer be rejected, and be killed. So who's with me? And I doubt many people would quickly respond like Gimli in The Lord of the Rings. Certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? Though of course we know that there wasn't truly a small chance of success for Jesus. But even still. Jesus laid out his path and he said, If you want to come after me, my path to the cross must be your path too. So for us, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And this is where a point of clarity, I think, is really important. We have to know that Jesus' death on the cross for sins was an unrepeatable event. Romans 6.10 tells us that the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Christ's death is a once for all unrepeatable action. 
Only Christ's death can pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Nothing that we could ever do, even die as a martyr for Jesus, could add one drop of payment to his atoning blood. However, though Christ's death is unrepeatable as a payment for sin, it is also a model for us. It's a template of sorts for the Christian life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow him. And one helpful way to understand what Jesus means here is to look at it as three daily deaths that he calls us to. That we are to daily die to desires or daily die to your desires, daily die to your sin, and daily die to your reputation. And I want to emphasize daily here because Jesus emphasizes it. Dying to your desires, dying to your sin, and dying to your reputation are not one-time deaths, but deaths that we die over and over again as we follow our crucified Savior. So first, daily die to your desires. Look with me to verses 23 to 24. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The word for life in verse 24, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing as your physical life. It can also be translated soul or self. It's referring to who you truly are in your inner being, and it includes things like your desires. Jesus isn't saying, if you want to be saved, you have to physically die for me. Because that wouldn't work anyway with the whole idea of doing this daily taking up your cross anyway. You can't daily take up your cross and physically die daily for Jesus over and over again. But he is saying, if you want to follow me and be saved, you have to die to yourself. And dying to self comes with a serious warning. If you try to hold on to your desires... If you try to preserve yourself, you actually end up losing yourself. You have to die to live. Following Jesus means over and over again, putting to death our sinful desires and being willing to give up what we want for the sake of what Jesus wants and what is good for others. The way of Jesus, it's not just a way of self-indulgence. And we live in a very self-indulgent culture. You deserve it. It's a whole marketing tactic for advertisements. You deserve this muffin. You deserve these shoes. You deserve this vacation. We convince ourselves that we can have whatever we want because, quote, we deserve it. Now hear me, there's nothing wrong with deserving some good rest at the end of a hard day. But we often treat our wants as things that we must have, and as things that we're unwilling to part ways with. But if you're going to follow Jesus, instead of clinging to your desires, you have to be willing to give them up over and over again. One great example of this is parenthood. Now, I'm not even a parent, but I have parents, and I know some parents, I know some of you are parents. 
So I've come to understand, even if only partially, that parenthood involves countless daily deaths to love and care for your children. I mean, even think about how a young parent gives up sleep at 3 a.m. to feed their crying baby. The question in that moment isn't, what do I want right now? But what does the person I'm called to love need right now? But this dying to your desires type of love, it's shown best in the suffering and death of Christ. Because Christ truly deserved all glory and he deserved all goodness, but he laid aside his rights, what he deserved to save us, even while we were completely undeserving. Dying to our desires is necessary if we are to walk in the way of our suffering savior who gave himself up for us undeserving sinners. As a specific point of application, I want to encourage all of us to think about how we can die to ourselves as we begin to gather for worship this next week. We all probably have our own preferences and opinions about how things should be done, and that's fine. But we need to be willing to lay aside our preferences for the sake of our brothers and sisters who may have different preferences. Let's look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, sometimes the desires that we need to set aside aren't necessarily bad things. The parent staying up at 3 a.m. to feed their crying baby who desires sleep, it's not a bad thing that they desire sleep. But other times, however, the desires that we must put to death are sinful desires. And this is the second daily death that I want to talk about. Daily die to your sin. Lust. Greed, envy, gluttony, and pride, they all play on our desires. They all promise satisfaction to us. They promise joy to us, but they all end in death. Verse 25 tells us that you can gain the whole world. You can get every pleasure and every desire you've ever had, but the price is that you lose your very self in the process. So, we are called to die to our sin. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Something that is vital for you to understand as you seek to put to death your sin is that Jesus' cross not only models dying to sin for us, it enables dying to sin. Jesus' cross, it doesn't just model dying to sin for us, it enables dying to sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, this is speaking of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you see the connection there between Jesus' once-for-all death on the cross and our death to sin, our sanctification as we seek to put to death sin and come to life in righteousness? So we not only must fight for our sin, but we can fight against sin. Knowing that the guilt for sin is, un is undone, the guilt for sin is gone, and that the ultimate power of sin has been destroyed by Jesus at the cross. So fight. Fight against your sin and die to your sin and its desires. Then we have our third daily death. Daily die to your reputation. 
daily die to your reputation. Look to verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now this right here is one of the many examples of Jesus saying something that's very hard. And it's not hard in the sense of being hard to understand, but it's hard in the sense of it being hard to hear. If we're ashamed of Jesus, Jesus will be ashamed of us. The call here is to carry our crosses by being willing to bear the bad reputation that comes with being associated with Jesus and his teaching. And this is largely what taking up your cross back in verse 23 means. We have to see that the cross was more than an instrument of death in the Roman Empire. There are actually much more efficient ways to kill people. It was intentionally an instrument of suffering. And if you're going to follow Jesus, then you must be willing to suffer. And the cross was also an instrument of shame. Picking up your cross and carrying it through the city was very intentionally a walk of shame. And it was a warning to the city. So picking up your cross involves the concept of dying to yourself every day. And it also carries the idea of willingly undergoing the suffering and shame of being identified with Jesus and with his teaching. Are you willing to die to your reputation to be associated with Jesus and his teaching? Jesus and his teaching in many ways are falling out of favor and popularity in our culture. But instead of complaining and moaning about our changing world as if something weird is happening, we should see, first of all, that this is exactly what we should expect because Jesus told us that we would be hated for his namesake. And secondly, we should see this not as something to complain about, but as an opportunity to follow Jesus. Let's not moan and complain when the world rejects us for following Jesus and Jesus' teaching. Look to Jesus and see that he was rejected and killed by the very people he came to save. So let us bear reproach and suffering with patience and with love always seeking the good of even those who would hate us, not attempting to fight back in anger. And let us count it an honor to be associated with Jesus in his suffering and in his rejection. Now, is any of this daily dying easy? No, it's not easy. That's not what you signed up for if you have decided to follow Jesus. I love what songwriter Matt Papa says in one of his songs. He says, take your cross and die. So if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. But what I really want us to leave with this morning is the good news that Jesus leaves his disciples with in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. After all of this talk of a suffering and dying Messiah, and all the talk of taking up our crosses and denying ourselves, Jesus reminds them and us that suffering isn't the end. When Jesus listed what he must do as the Messiah, he not only listed his suffering, rejection, and death, 
but he also listed his resurrection. Jesus would die, but he would also rise and establish through his resurrection and ascension a kingdom that would never end. And some who were standing with Jesus would live to see the day that his kingdom was inaugurated. Some would even get a foretaste of that in the transfiguration, which we'll see next week. But Jesus reminds them of this coming kingdom to show them that suffering, rejection, and death are not the end. He wants to show them that the cross leads to the crown, that he will reign in the kingdom of God, and that those who die with him, who take up their crosses, will also rise with him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into the world to suffer, die, and rise for us, help us to lay aside our rights and our desires as we seek to follow him and serve one another. Teach us to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses daily to follow Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus, I my cross have taken All to leave and follow Thee Destitute, despised, forsaken Thou from hence my all shall be Perish every fond ambition all I've sought or hoped or known Yet how rich is my condition God and heaven are still my own Let the world despise and they have left my Savior too Human hearts and looks deceive me Thou art not like them untrue Oh, well, Thou dost smile upon me God of wisdom Charm me, were that joy on me.
disaster, scorn, and pain in thy service. Thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for Change to glad 